Much of the Western Hemisphere had been long engulfed in the darkness of slavery prior to the mid-1800s. But for the slaves of the West Indian colonies, a new day was dawning. At daybreak on August 2, 1830, they were to be set free. What do you think those slaves did on that last night before freedom? Would you have been able to sleep? It was reported that all night long on August 1st, 1830, the West Indian slaves packed into their humble church buildings by the tens of thousands. And they sat through the night. waiting for the rising sun to dawn on the day of their redemption. Without clocks or watches, they did not know precisely when those first streaks of daylight would penetrate the darkness of that long night. But then they heard something. They heard something you've probably heard if you've been up all night or up before the sun. They heard the start of the birds chirping. It was about time. And then they set some of their best up to the highest hills with prearranged signals to send back word with what they saw from the hills down into the dark valley that it had come. Freedom had dawned. And as those birds began to chirp, the celebrating started. Until the messages were sent back into the darkness of that valley, freedom's day had finally dawned. August 2, 1830. In the big scheme of God's saving plan, that is sort of where we are in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is like the chirping of the birds just before the first rays of messianic dawn break upon the new day of redemption. God's long-developing plan of salvation had been dormant for a very long time. There had been no prophet with a word from God since Malachi had written 400 years earlier. But God was on the move. And those watching for him knew it. Centuries earlier, the prophet Daniel had pinpointed the generation to which Messiah would come. And like those slaves in the West Indies, God's people sat in the darkness with a growing anticipation. At long last, God was on the move again. Something big was about to happen. The Messianic age was about to dawn, and the universe would be changed forever. We have already considered the initial rumblings. God sent the angel Gabriel to announce to a priest named Zechariah that his aged barren wife, Elizabeth, would give birth to a son. This son, whom Zechariah was to name John, had been chosen by God to identify and to announce the Messiah to God's people. And then you remember the angel Gabriel appears to the young virgin from Nazareth named Mary, announces to her that she will conceive miraculously and bear the long-prophesied Messiah. 
Soon after Gabriel's visit, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. She conceives miraculously, and she hurries down to see the sign, which is Elizabeth, pregnant with child. Now six months into that pregnancy, miraculously, the chirpings have begun, haven't they? We've looked at them through this first chapter of Luke. The chirping of the song of Elizabeth, which she sings at verse 42 and following. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women! And blessed is the child you will bear. And on she goes, singing the glories of God as the dawn is about to break. And we've heard Mary sing, verse 46 and following of this first chapter. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary adds her song to this coming light. Zechariah, deaf and mute by divine discipline for his lack of belief in God's plan, is not able to join these songs, but Zechariah believes God now. The woman whom he believed and even argued with God could never conceive is now six months pregnant, and the mother of Messiah has spent the last three months in his home. Zechariah is now a believer. And he is about to become a father, just as Gabriel promised. Verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. So we're at the end here of Mary's visit. Mary has perhaps gone home before the actual birth. We're not told this, but Elizabeth does give birth to this, law, this promised son. Now think about Elizabeth and Zechariah on this day. As the years had passed, Elizabeth had slowly come to terms with the harsh realization that she would never bear a child. In a culture which exalted childbirth in every possible way, in a culture which saw children as perhaps the premier and unimpeachable symbol of God's blessing, Elizabeth was barren. But what great joy now filled her soul. Elizabeth holds in her arms the newborn son she was convinced that she would never have. And people who thought and felt like God thinks and feels gathered around her and celebrated with her, genuinely rejoicing over this truly miracle baby. The Lord had shown Elizabeth great mercy, the text reads here. The translation, the Greek could be, readed, could be translated, He exalted His mercy to her. He glorified His mercy in respect to Elizabeth. This is not something Elizabeth earned or deserved, but this is the great gift of God. We've sung of that mercy today. We've sung of it in terms of God's faithfulness to us. He just continues to come through for His people with mercy and grace. And Elizabeth celebrates in this unusual circumstance. Now I'd like you to just stop for a moment and let's think about one thing there in verse 57. And that is the fact that she gave birth to a son. I would suspect that that just passes by us so easily we don't even think about it. Of course she gives birth to a son. What else is she going to give birth to? Think about this. Think about what has happened here. What if Elizabeth had given birth to a daughter? If the world is run by chance, and there was a 50-50 chance that she'd give birth to a daughter, 
But there was, of course, as we assume and don't even probably stop to think about it often, there was a 100% guarantee that this would be a boy. Because God said it would be a boy. In chapter 1, in verse 13, before Elizabeth was pregnant, God said it will be a boy. And you will name him John. And what we are seeing in Luke, what we will see throughout the gospel, this emphasis that God keeps his promises. He does what he says he will do. He always does what he says we will do. And so we are here in 2003 on this first day of June singing, Great is thy faithfulness. God's word is never broken. As Pastor Pratt read earlier in the book of Isaiah, we see the idols who can keep no promises and who know not the future. But God says, this will be a boy and you will name him John. Is that the God you know? I mean, really. The God that you know on a daily basis. A God who says something and keeps His word without fail, ever. I think we often struggle with the response of Zechariah. God gives His word and we say, come on. No, not really. You can't do that. You won't do that. That isn't going to be the case. It's that way with other people who are better or who are closer to God than I am, but it's not that way with me. We have a God, and I trust that that is your God, who keeps His Word every time, without fail. The God who reigns sovereignly over all things, who knows the future and who always keeps His Word, I hope that is the God that you know, because that is the only living God. Of scripture. Well, on the eighth day of his life, the little boy is prepared for the rite of circumcision. We remember this established in Genesis 17 as God gives this unique sign to Abraham. The Mosaic law further stipulates that this would be carried on for Jewish boys. Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 3. <clears throat> this rite identified Israelite boys and their offspring with the covenant of God established with his people. But at this sacred ceremony, there is a little squabble which erupts. Verse 59, On the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, and they were, they were going to name him after his father Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. So the neighbors and the relatives regather on this eighth day of the baby's life to witness this ritual of circumcision Typically, this job of cutting the boy's foreskin would fall to Zechariah as the father. Sometimes the responsibility was delegated to a woman to do. Maybe something similar to dads today, clipping the umbilical cord in the birthing room, which is a late-breaking practice and one that's really neat, I'll have to say. I think it's a great idea, one of the few things that modernity has blessed us with. But maybe something like that, that was kind of the father's prerogative. If he is a little bit squeamish about that, he could delegate the job to someone else. But that would have been Zechariah's job. Also, very importantly, it would have been Zechariah's responsibility to name his child here at this time. The problem, of course, is what? Zechariah has, is speechless in, in, in a very unique way. He has no ability to speak. So the assembled celebrants are all too happy to jump in and provide the answer for this family. 
The committee gathers and they deem it fitting to name the boy Zechariah after his father. This was a widely followed custom, and I think it's important for us to consider that here. Uh, Boys would often be named, particularly a firstborn boy, almost without exception, named after his grandfather or his father, depending on their age. As one commentator put it, they had determined that it should be Big Zek and Little Zek here, and they've got that all figured out. We might look at this and say, these obnoxious relatives naming your child for you. You can imagine that happening? Well, we all can, can't we? It happens to this very day. But Elizabeth will hear none of this. And in verse 60, she says, he will be called John. That'd be a better translation. I think there's a fine nuance of interest here that's missed in our translation. He will be called John, she says. John, something like Yahweh's gift or Yahweh is gracious. Well, the guests object to this breach of custom. You may not want to call him Zechariah, but John... Who in the world is John? How does that work? There's none of his relatives that are named John. And so, verse 61, we read, They said to her, There's no one among his relatives who has that name. Verse 62, Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Certainly, Zechariah will have more sense than Elizabeth here. He's probably in some type of postpartum funk of some sort or something, and they just turn away from her and go to Zechariah and say, Will you talk some sense to this woman? She wants to name him John. As I mentioned, naming the boy was the father's prerogative. And he asks, of course, not being able to speak and, and not able to hear either. He's probably been a little bit out of the loop here in what has been going on in front of him. He asks, verse 63, for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. I see there the people kind of huddled around, hovering over to see Zechariah show up and to show Elizabeth her place here. And on this, what would have been a wooden slab covered with wax, he scratches out this simple sentence. And I love the way it's said here. Not his name will be John, his name is John. John. The tension heightened as he scratches. His name is John. This naming is an act of humble faith on Zechariah's part. And in response, God removes the temporary curse and finally lets John chirp along with Mary and Elizabeth. Verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak, praising God. This is a godly man. He's been disciplined by the Lord, but he's learned good people, godly, mature people can do wrong and they can be disciplined. But Zechariah is back in the game now and he praises God with his tongue. There's a lot going on here. Zechariah had had over nine months to contemplate what God was doing. He had hosted Mary, the mother of Messiah, for three months in his own home. Remember, Zechariah's experience at the temple as he had to journey back to his hometown without the ability to speak and even tell Elizabeth of these great things. Had to write them all out. Zechariah's lungs had to be fairly ready to burst with praise. Can you imagine sitting in our assembly here week after week as songs are sung and not being able to speak a word? And then some nine, ten, who knows how long months later having the chance to sing again. 
I lose my voice and I can't sing in here one week. I can hardly stand it. Can you imagine going nine months without being able to express all of these wonderful things that God was doing in his life? His lungs fairly burst. And I'd like to just focus on that for a minute longer. Remember, on the day that Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, where was he? He had been chosen for that by lot for that distinct privilege on that remarkable day to offer incense on the altar there in the temple. And what was his privilege? If you remember the, the, the picture of the temple, it was to come out of that building and to stand on the steps as all of those worshipers assembled around. This was his one shot to do this. Only one time in life could a priest do this. And this was his great pinnacle experience, to offer that incense, then to come out onto the steps and to bless the people with a fairly prearranged psalm that he would speak his blessing and God's blessing upon the people of God assembled there. That was Zechariah's great privilege. But when he doubted the angel Gabriel in the temple, he came out onto the steps and he had no tongue. He could not speak. He could not bless the people. After nine months of silence, and more than nine months perhaps, he was ready. He lifts his voice in praise to God. The result of all of this is what would be expected, verse 65, that the neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Word traveled quickly through the region, and the tense of the Greek verbs would indicate that people just kept talking about this and passing on this information. Something big was happening. God was on the move. This was no usual birth, no typical naming ceremony. Something was in the works. The day of Messiah was about to dawn. As that song says, shout it out, Judah, shout it out on the highest mountain, Messiah's coming. What then is this child going to be? God had successfully identified John as a special boy. Word was traveling quickly. Watch this boy. Something's going to unfold here. Who is this boy? Zechariah's hymn of praise will answer that question. Zechariah's song of praise is somewhat similar to Mary's. If you would compare the two, there's some unique connections between them. Mary's song had two distinct sections. In the first, she praised God for his election of her to participate in the grand scheme of redemption. What was the second part of her hymn? The second part, you remember, expanded generally to the saving work of God. Zechariah's develops in the opposite direction. He starts with the general focus, praising God for his grand scheme of redemption. If you'll just look there with your eye, that's verses 68 down through 75. You'll probably notice in your translation something of a division there between 75 and 76. In that first section, Zechariah exalts in God's plan of salvation generally. Then at verse 76 through 79, he will narrow his focus and will sing uh, about the role that his son John will play in God's saving purposes. Let's look at his song here briefly. First of all, that first section, Zechariah exalts in God's plan of salvation. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. 
Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Like Mary's song, this song is saturated with Old Testament imagery. Now, remember I mentioned Zechariah's great disappointment as he stood on the steps of the temple and was unable to speak that blessing on the people? There's been some very interesting work done by scholars to look at the traditions and the history of that blessing and to note the significant parallels between that blessing and Zechariah's song here. I know I'm doing a little guesswork here, but follow me if you will. It seems like Zechariah had to go all the way from Jerusalem to Judea and through these nine months of pregnancy and however long all that took and he just kept thinking about that song he was never going to be able to sing because you could only be chosen for that job once in your lifetime remember he lost his chance because he didn't believe God well Zechariah believes God now and he can't wait to sing and here is a song that reworks that traditional blessing upon the people of God after the offering of incense. And here is his song in praise of God, the great Savior. Let's pick our way through this just briefly. Verse 68, he speaks, uh, Praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, <coughs> because He has come. Our translation reads, literally, He has visited His people. He has redeemed His people. He has redeemed Israel. How can this apply to a nation. He's redeemed his people. Think of this. It seems in the past tense here. He's redeemed his people. How does that work? How does that work with Israel? How does that apply to a nation deeply influenced by religious hypocrites? How does this apply to a nation polarized by religious factions, ruled by pagan armies, and governed by a lunatic? How has God redeemed His people, past tense? I think the answer here in Zechariah's song is the same answer that we came up with in Mary's song. He is looking to the future. This is a prophetic prayer. But it's so good as done that he speaks in the past tense. God has redeemed His people, and He has come. So confident is Zechariah that God will keep His promises, that He speaks of Him having redeemed His people. This might be like those slaves of the West Indian colonies talking about their freedom the night before they actually had it. Now there was no work to do. There was no master in sight. It hadn't come yet, but it was as good as done. And that is Zechariah praying here of the redemption that is coming in the Messiah And of this visitation that has taken place, as I mentioned that phrase, has come, is the Greek word, he has visited. It's a common Old Testament concept for God moving uniquely to bless his people. What does Zechariah mean? What specifically does he have in mind? That God has redeemed his people, that he has come to visit his people. Verse 69, 
This is it specifically. Notice at verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. The light that is dawning, the salvation that is coming, is this horn of salvation. A horn, in the ancient context, was, a, was common imagery for strength and power, often applied to kings. The picture here is of a bull or of a ram thrashing its horns in the air in a display of power. Often in reference to an individual of great power, there seems to be here a reference to Messiah. He has raised up a horn of salvation for the house of his servant David. Notice there the reference to David. The house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. What does that mean? This horn, this individual, this powerful worker is coming, sent by God through the lineage of David as the prophets have foretold. Now let's remind ourselves what that means by looking at just a few passages quickly. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. You'll remember here in Judah's blessing, in Jacob's blessing of Judah, (coughs) the prophetic word about Rulers in Judah's lineage. Genesis 49, verse 10, the dying Jacob says to Judah, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. Or as the margin reads, until Shiloh comes, or until he comes to whom tribute belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. This is a prophetic Reference to Messiah, the king who will come and who will rule. We then remember in David's account, 2 Samuel 7, (coughs) that God blesses David, establishing his covenant with David, and says, 2 Samuel 7, find verse 11 in the center of the verse. 7. 11b, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there is an aspect there where God is referring to Solomon, There's an aspect to which his kingdom is established forever is looking down the road. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God promises through Judah kings will come. He promises to David that through his offspring there will be a king that will rule forever. And Isaiah prophesies concerning this Davidic Davidic Messiah in 7.14, Isaiah 7 and verse 14. We just highlight some of the more obvious references. There are many others. Isaiah 7 and verse 14. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will we'll call Him Emmanuel, God with us. Now chapter 9 and verse 6. That Messiah would come. And we learn of his government in line with David's offspring. 
Verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's, those are blasphemous names, if this one is not divine. He will be called the Mighty God. Verse 7, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness for that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so it makes perfect sense what Zechariah is saying, that God is raising up a horn of salvation from the house of David, as the prophets have said for so many centuries. What kind of salvation does Zechariah have in mind? Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. I think Zechariah is rightly thinking of the coming of Christ, bringing physical deliverance to Israel from her enemies. The issue Zechariah could not understand is when this deliverance would ultimately come. The physical deliverance Zechariah had in mind will not be realized in Jesus' first coming. Zechariah is not seeing that at all. But he does see properly a physical deliverance of God's people. The enemies Jesus will defeat on his first mission to earth will be spiritual. Satan and death and sin. Zechariah continues to praise God then for his works of salvation, verse 72, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. There's the promise-keeping God, the God of mercy who loves his people, who will remember, verse 73, his oath that he swore to our father Abraham. That's the holy covenant to which he specifically refers, the oath to our father Abraham. It's not been too long since we've been through the book of Genesis. And we remember very clearly what were those two promises God gave to Abraham. There were two promises specifically. You will have a people that will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Come on, Abraham. Let's go outside. Let's look up into the stars. See if you can count them. That's what your offspring will be like. I promise you that through your own body, and later he says through, Isaac, uh, uh, through Sarah, your wife, you will have innumerable offspring. What was the second promise? A land. Genesis 17, 8. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Who are Abraham's descendants those that come through his body, through Sarah, and to those descendants, I will give this land that you now stand on forever. A people and a land. Zechariah sees the coming of Messiah is fitting right into this prophetic promise of a land and a people and of salvation. And the text will begin to move more and more toward that end of things, the spiritual salvation. As he says in verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Deliverance from enemies. I think that it's physical deliverance, certainly from literal enemies. But it will issue forth in the ability to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There is a beautiful prophecy of what we long for as God's people. 
to be delivered from a world of darkness, to be delivered from a world of opposition, and to be able to serve God freely in righteousness and holiness, we might be duped and fooled to think in our easy culture that that's going on right now. It's not. There are people throughout this world today that are suffering for Jesus Christ, and there are people we could probably assume last night who died simply because they're Christians. This day doesn't live yet on this world. It's not dawned yet on this world. A day when we can live in holiness and righteousness without fear of any enemy. There's a day dawning when that will be ultimately the case. And the light has already begun to shine in the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's not here yet, but the day has dawned. And someday in glory, we will enter into that very type of environment. No fear from any enemy. No persecutor. No Satan. No sin. And we will serve God in holiness and righteousness forever and ever in the eternal Son of His kingdom. This is what Zechariah rejoices in. You know, I think... Zechariah could walk right in here with us and rejoice with us, just like we rejoice. And I hope you can hear his song and hear the same chords stirring within your own soul to live forever in the presence of God in holiness and righteousness, free of all enemies. That's the grand scheme of redemption, and that's what matters in this world. Zechariah has looked at that grand scheme. Now he turns to perhaps we can imagine this little baby in his arms. And all this grand scheme of God's redemptive purposes working through all the centuries of prophets and now a horn of salvation in the house of David about to be lifted up and here's my son, my son in my arms that I knew I'd never hold. Here is my son. Zechariah turns as was typical for the Jewish father at this point to give a blessing upon his son, and he talks about the role that this boy will play in this grand scheme. Verse 76, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. A prophet of the Most High. This is a word, a phrase, a designation emphasizing that God rules with sovereign authority over the affairs of history. There had been no prophet in Israel since Malachi penned his prophecy 400 years earlier, and now, says Zechariah the priest, here is the next prophet. A prophet of the Most High God who rules this universe. My son. Verse 76, second part, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him. That is John's mission right there in a nutshell. To go on before the Lord and prepare the way for Him. In ancient settings, kings commonly employed servants to precede them on the journey, to prepare the path, to make sure that it was smooth and and that the uh, chariot was able to ride along or the horse was able to plod along without problem. And they would warn the citizenry that the king was coming. They'd alert them to the fact so that all was prepared ahead of the king. That's John. He's preparing the way. For whom? For the Most High. For the Lord. He will prepare the way before the Lord. That's John's mission. 
verse 77. And in that mission, it is to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. You're not going to read anything better than that today. Most likely. That is what it's all about. The message of salvation concerning the forgiveness of their sins. Messiah was coming to save His people. The dawning John's birth signaled was one of salvation and forgiveness of sins. And Zechariah stresses that this is, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of God. This God of faithfulness to whom we have sung is this God of mercy who loves His people and treats us with undeserved favor. Verse 78, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. What's the rising sun? The rising sun is the baby that is in Mary's womb right then. The rising sun, still shrouded in darkness at the moment, was about the dawn. The birds are chirping. The day is just about here. This rising sun from heaven is the horn of salvation, Messiah. Messiah will come. He will shine like freedom's light on a world blinded by moral slavery. The warm light of His presence on this earth will chase away the cold shadow of death itself and will guide our feet into the path of peace. Verse 79, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. What does that mean? The path of peace That's not merely absence from war, but it's a life of peace with God. And it is that life which Luke spends the rest of this book showing us. It's the life of Christ. It's the life of dawn that He has brought. The song is ended, the bird is chirped, and on the horizon of history, the black sky is beginning to lighten in anticipation of the first rays of messianic light. Jesus is about here. And John is his preparer, his forerunner. Very briefly, Luke adds, and the child grew, grew in stature, as is said of Jesus, that is, he matured physically. He grew. And he became strong in spirit, or literally, he grew in spirit. He matured spiritually, becoming strong in spirit. He was growing in the grace of God, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. That is, he remained in isolation, growing physically, growing spiritually, strong in spirit to carry the message of Messiah, and living in isolation. Now, there's a lot of curiosity there, and we've got to stop here soon, but just for a minute, where did Zechariah and Elizabeth live? Not in the desert. They lived in the hill country of Judea. We don't know what happened there and what's taking place, but there have been many who have suggested, I'm not going to go there, I can't exactly buy it, but it's really intriguing to say many suggested that John's parents died (coughs) fairly early in his life and that he was removed to an isolated commune of ascetic celibate holy men at Qumran where they raised him up in the thinking of their sect. And much of what John says and does, in fact, does reflect much of what the Qumran sect did.
did. Now, I don't know that we can place him there, and I don't know that we need to. I don't think anything's gained there. But he is living out in the desert. It was the practice of some of these sects to take in boys and to train them because they were celibate sects, and so it was the only way to propagate the sect was to take in boys, orphans, or something of the like, or parents who would deliver their boy there to be trained in the desert to think about the the future in the Messianic age. We don't know what happened to John there, but what we know is God puts him on ice, so to speak. That's mixing metaphors, isn't it? Put him on ice in the desert. You know what I mean. He's, he's out of circulation. And I'm sure that in part the reason is so that he would not simply gain quick celeb, uh, celebrity status, but would wait until God was ready for him. And we will find in chapter 3 that the word of God comes to John, and then he's ready when God's ready for him. But he puts him in isolation to wait until it's time. Malachi had prophesied that this one would come. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 speaks of this one who would prepare the way of Messiah. The light of the Messianic age was about to dawn. The rising sun from heaven was soon to be born to a virgin. What a day of joy and gladness this was for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what a day of joy it is for us to walk in Messiah's light. So many years removed from these ancient events. But I think as we look on Zechariah's song, we tag in again to verse 77. This is the essence of it, and this is what matters in life to give people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. That's the message that some of us had opportunity to share yesterday as we went out from house to house and had some excellent opportunities to share that very message with people. That's the message we're still proclaiming, like little John the Baptist taking the message of God and saying, here's the hope of salvation because of the mercy of of our God. Can you sing with Zechariah and Mary and Elizabeth to your Redeemer and the Lord who has visited you, who has brought this salvation to earth? If not, if you can't sing that song, if you don't know Him and you know you don't know Him as your personal Savior, come to Him today. Embrace Him as the light of salvation and the source of forgiven sin. But if you do know him in this way, then I call upon you, encourage you to walk in the path of divine peace. Proclaim the news to people lost in darkness and worship the Lord with gladness as we sing for joy to the Lord that the light has come. Forgiveness is available and we can walk in the peace of God. Let's bow for prayer as we rejoice in our hearts. Our Father, we are thankful for your grace to us. It has been demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that we would get a sense of the joy, the enthusiasm that Zechariah experienced, that Elizabeth experienced, and the joy that was in their heart as they saw that you were on the move. That we, 
like those West India colony slaves would sit and wait for the ultimate rising and the coming again of this Messiah. Lord, we are so thankful for what you have done. We are so grateful, Lord, to be reminded in this world that steers our attention in so many different directions that you are the light of light. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and Jesus is the Savior. I praise you for the privilege to have embraced him as personal Lord, and I pray for any among us who have not had that experience that you'd bring them to it. Lord, that by your grace... We will sing all of our days of the redemption that you have won. Thank you, Father, for the reminder of your great plan of salvation. I pray that that plan would truly be at the center of our lives as your people. That it would be at the center of what we talk about with others. That it would be at the center of how we live our lives. That it would be the focus of our future. Your redemptive plan. God, you could take everything away from us and leave us with salvation and we would be eternally rich. May we never forget that. And we do pray for the return of our Savior and for the salvation of those that are still in darkness. May we who are on the hills broadcast back to the dark valley. That the light has dawned, and that there is salvation in Messiah's wings. Help us to that end as a church, and build us up in your holy faith. In Christ's name I pray, amen.